Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, we have a big problem. The, the big problem is we have a, a verse uh, in the Torah that says the following, that God gives wisdom to the wise. And if you think about that, that's actually very problematic, because if you're wise, then why do you need wisdom? And if you're not wise, how do you get wisdom? So, so seemingly, it's the worst of both worlds. God gives wisdom to the wise. How, if you're not wise and you want to get into the loop, how do you do it? So we've got another verse which sort of solves the problem, which is Reshis Hachma Yiras Hashem, which is that the beginning of all wisdom is the awareness of God. So that's your secret key, your secret entryway, is what we call Yiras Shemayim, which means an awareness of God's presence, an awareness of God's Infinity, that <clears throat> allows you to enter into the ranks of the wise. Because one who has yira, we're told, that that's the beginning of wisdom. So now, once you have this awareness, and one doesn't have to be necessarily wise or have a high, a high IQ or anything like that, but once one has this awareness that they're part of something larger, that there's a guiding hand throughout all of existence, then all of a sudden one becomes open to wisdom. And that's, how, and that's how it starts. So the beginning of everything is the recognition of God and God guiding us. That's, that's the beginning of all wisdom. And if you think about it, you know, uh, I have a favorite story, and I, I think that this has been attributed to other people, but I heard it in the name of the young Ger Rebbe. And he was, you know, one of these child geniuses and you know, super holy men, just even as a kid. And so a, a, an older rabbi came up to him, and he's just a little boy, and he says to him, you know, I'll give you a kopeck, or whatever the currency was, I'll give you a kopeck if you can tell me where God is. And he said, I'll give you two kopecks if you can tell me where God isn't. So already there was this tremendous awareness of God being absolutely everywhere and in everything. Now, Another, another way of, 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 of looking at it, um, many people think that, that there's a list of things that exist. There are pencils, and there's football, and there's soccer, and there's watermelon, and there's concrete, and there's Detroit, right? There are all these things. There's oregano, there's God, there's the Indian Ocean, and it's like, well, wait a second, let's just back up a moment. God is just on a list of things that exist. See, a lot of people think that, and they don't understand that. No, that's not what it is at all. Everything exists within God. So again, this, this is the beginning, the beginning step of Yira, awareness, which is the beginning of all of wisdom. In other words, in journalism, we have um, a term called I don't know if I should say we have a term that suggests I'm a journalist, which I'm not. But anyway, in journalism, there is a term called bearing the lead. And bearing the lead means that, you know, every newspaper, even on web pages and things like that, you have a headline. And in that headline, that's the essence of the news. Or certainly in the first paragraph, you've got the essence of what the story is, why we should care. Now, bad journalism you basically have to read to paragraph number five or whatever it is to find out what the hook of the story is, what the key piece of information is. That's called burying the lead. And the problem with Torah 
um, if you can use that phrase, is that it's so vast. It's so vast and it's so interesting that you're constantly learning amazing new things about absolutely everything under the sun. But one of the consequences of that is there's an information overload where it's possible to bury the lead. And so you have to know what's the lead. What's like the first primary thing? And that's that God is infinite, that he controls everything, and that we exist within him. And now that's the beginning of wisdom. Now one can formulate an intelligent understanding of life in the world. Now, now I want to zero in on an idea, and we'll develop it sort of like loosely and thematically. But, but this idea is what I would like to suggest is the limits of universality. Meaning to say, we live in a society where for a number of different reasons, and, and some very good reasons, there's an accepted belief that everybody is right. And the reason why we have that is ultimately there's a utilitarian purpose to it, which is that this way nobody kills each other. You know, this way it's sort of like you can have all different cultures coexisting with another, one another, and you can say you're right, and you're right, and you're right, but the subtext is, don't kill me, don't kill me, don't kill me, right? But ultimately, everyone can't be right. <laughs> that, I, I'll give you an example, just to, just to pick one point, just, just so I can be ultra-specific. Islam suggests that in the Akedah, in the binding of Isaac, right? Everyone is familiar with the story of the binding of Isaac. Islam comes along approximately 2,000 years after the event itself and says, it wasn't Isaac, it was Yishmael. Now, I suggest, humbly, we, they can't both be right. <laughs> it's either Isaac or it's Yishmael. It's one or the other. For, for someone to say 2,000 years later, approximately, the entire story is wrong. This story that we've been learning one way for the last... 2,000 years approximately, is actually radically different. That, there, there's a problem with that. Okay? Let's talk about Scientology for a moment. Scientology suggests that a science fiction writer from like the 1950s divined outer space creatures which came down to Earth and, you know, had, anyway, it's a whole complicated, crazy tale. But one would have to be a prophet to know what happened before the world was created and like pre-Adam and Eve, pre-humanity, what all the dynamics were and what all the intentions of those who were there before the world was created was. You, you can't postulate something like that. You have to either be a prophet, a legitimate prophet, or you have to be a crackpot. <laughs> and completely wrong. So, so in other words, we're very, we're very sort of like uncomfortable about saying some of the things like this because we live in a society of political correctness and political correctness demands mutual respect. And Torah, by the way, also demands 
mutual respect. And one of the teachings the Torah says is that you can ridicule Avodah Zorah, you can ridicule idol worship, but you can't ridicule the idol worshiper. In other words, every single person has dignity and, and has the, the, the right to go on his spiritual path to divine the truth. So that we have to have a, a, a deep-seated respect for each other. But for the theory itself that they come up with, if it's just plain and correct, that can be ridiculed. That can be made fun of. So that's a very important distinction to keep in mind. But what we're suggesting is that there is actually a concept of truth. And again, this makes us very uncomfortable, very squeamish in this day and age, because ultimately we've seen it lead too many times to one group saying, we have the truth, now we're going to kill you, who doesn't have the truth. And so in order to maintain peace, truth goes out the window. So we just have to be aware of this. We have to be aware of this. Now, one of the deepest things I ever heard my teacher, my Rebbe, Reb Shlomo Karlbach, say, such a simple statement. He said the following, God doesn't run the world in a one plus one equals two way. And, you know, part of us, you see, we're, we're sort of, our brains are sort of hardwired to look for the rational and to dismiss that which we can't understand. And to just sort of like, you know, like you pick up when you're dusting and then you've got a little pile of dust and you don't know where to put the dust. So you lift up the carpet and you put the dust underneath the carpet, right? And it's sort of like, okay, now everything is great. Well, on some level, everything is great. On another level, the house is just as dirty. You just don't see it. So people do something called compartmentalizing. Right? They, I hope I'm pronouncing that. <laughs> they, put, they put different um, bits of cognitive dissonance, things that they can't understand, in different compartments in their brain. And then they just, that's just it. And they just live that way instead of trying to resolve and understand in a deeper way what's actually going on. So, let me give you an example of, of com- compartmentalizing, okay? Um, you see, for thousands of years, there was um, the Aristotelian model of the perfect shape in nature. Meaning to say, Aristotle posited that the the most perfect shape in nature was the sphere. And that was was it. That that sort of dominated intellectual thought for generations and generations and generations and generations. Now, Now, there was a very negative consequence in terms of the advancement of science for that. Because on an aesthetic level, in terms of actual beauty... The sphere actually is very compelling and wonderful. It's just amazing. You know, it's circular on every side. It's, it's actually, a sphere is quite beautiful. It really is. But on a scientific level, there were limits to how far the influence of the perfection of the sphere went. And I'll be more specific. I'll tell you what I mean by this. You see, the probably most advanced um, early science was astronomy. From really the beginning, the beginnings of mankind, 
human beings were expert observers of the stars. Expert. And they were really able to chart orbital patterns extremely precisely. The calendars that the Chachamim, that the Jewish sages set up, are accurate to this day. They're, they're phenomenally accurate. And, and so, we had a problem, which was that we assumed that since the planets themselves and the stars themselves were circular, that the orbital patterns were also circular. And that didn't fit with the math. And so, people would make these very, very precise measurements, and then they would always think, well, wait a second, how can it be? Aristotle said, the perfect shape is the sphere, is the circle, right? So it has to be that the planets are circular, and the orbits have to be circular. It has to be. And yet, the more they looked into it, the more they were starting dusting the, the actual, very accurate mathematical observations under the carpet because they didn't fit with what they were actually observing. And so they compartmentalized. They said, you know something? This is, even though I'm observing it this way, it's actually, ah, I must be wrong, whatever it is. Along comes Kepler and says, wait a second, let's actually look at the data up close and take the data seriously and see what the data tells us. And what does it say? That actually the orbital patterns are elliptical. They're not circles. And now that was a major, major breakthrough. Okay. So life doesn't work in a one plus one equals two way. Life is deeper than that. And all of us know that we have this conflict. On the one hand, like I mentioned, we're sort of hardwired for rational thought and rational observation. Meaning to say, the sun rises and the sun sets. There's great regularity to that. If I hold a glass object and I drop it, it will smash on the floor. There's gravity. There's great regularity to that. These are the rules. If I don't eat after a certain period of time, I will become hungry. These are the rules that govern life. And, and there's great rational predictability behind it, right? And yet, weird stuff happens all of the time, that we can't explain. And that's the data that we're sort of like, you know, pushing aside or not integrating or compartmentalizing where we just can't wrap our mind around it. And yet, let's actually look at the data. Let's look at what life is actually telling us. So, I want to share with you a story that happened to me this past week. And um, just to give one sort of anecdotal kind of like um, telling over this kind of stuff. And anyway, so there's a favorite bookstore that I have here in Los Angeles. Um, I never get to it, and I really like it. And it's called Book Soup. It's on Sunset, if you have ever a chance, one of the last great independent bookstores in L.A. And, um, you know, book jacket art is so phenomenal. I wish I could collect it and frame it. It's like so much, so much of the great graphic art is being done on book covers and for years now. And anyway... You know, you walk into this place and it's like sensory bombardment. I saw a book that I really wanted to buy. It was, it cost a thousand dollars. You know, it was this art book and it Tashin, if you know that publisher, they've actually got a bookstore on Beverly Drive. It's like, you know, probably about three feet long by when, when the, when the wingspan is full, you know, when you open it up, it's probably about, about four feet long. 
and it's heavy. It probably weighs 20, 30 pounds, you know, and just uh, amazing. And they do limited editions. Probably a good investment, but I haven't got a thousand dollars to drop on a book right now. So anyway, um, it, it's just a, they, they've got great stuff there. So I, I walk in and I, I looked at my watch beforehand because I'm like a, a magnet for parking tickets. And it's sort of like, I'm like, it's a very busy street. And I'm like, I, I will get a parking ticket at this place. So I just, I want to be very, very careful. So I walked in and I said, I'm going to be here for 15 minutes. I'm not going to spend much more time here because otherwise, you know, I'm going to blink and the day is going to be gone. And so I did that, kind of kept to my thing, walked out. And my car is about 10 yards away, kind of. And I start to walk. And then I notice something like two stores Three stores down, maybe, I see this sign, and it says, Rare First Editions, right? Rare First Edition Books. And I, uh, you know, it's just like this little thin sign. I've never noticed it before. And I thought, well, that's, that's kind of cool, because I, you know, I never seriously collected books, but I, but I sort of collected books at one point, and comic books also. And so First Editions are like, you know, they're very interesting to me, and, and, uh, and I like books. So, so I, I look at it, and I say, okay, well, l- let's check that out. And then I turn, and there's no store there. Instead, there's a stairwell going down in the middle of the block. So you have to picture that, because it's like sometimes you have an alleyway, but this wasn't an alleyway. It was like right in the middle of a row of stores, but a staircase going down. So they're like these stone steps, maybe 10, 15 steps. And I start to walk down. And on the bottom of the stairwell is this 60-ish-year-old Englishman in a Hawaiian shirt. And he's standing next to a glass bookcase on the bottom of the stairwell, just wide enough to fit the stairwell, of rare first edition hardcover books in this glass case. Like I saw the first edition of Catcher in the Rye right there and some other great books like right there. And so I'm like kind of walking down these steps and it's just like very disorienting. And I stand there and he says to me, where did you daven this morning? (laughs) And, you know, he saw my kippah. And by the way, I thought to myself, this is kind of like a big part of the story that I'm still kind of working through in my own life. Before I walked into the first bookstore, because I went straight from the first bookstore into this place, I, I was going to grab a, a baseball cap to put on. And, uh, and then I, for whatever reason, I thought, you know, nah, just whatever. You know, so, so he sees my keyboard and says, where did you, where did you daven this morning? And I thought it was so weird. It took me like a, a while to like answer that question. And he says, come, come with me, come. And then... <laughs> We then he leads me like a couple of steps down another stairwell, which then opens up into this like secret courtyard that's outdoors filled with flowers. And he's, you know, and and he says to me, um, yes, you know, my bookstore has been voted one of the 10 most important bookstores in America and this and that. And and then we walk along this small courtyard into this like English cottage filled with rare first editions, including first editions of Shakespeare and like all the great authors, like up and down and all around, like everywhere you look is like a rare first edition, great classic book. And we're talking about 
writing and this and that and books. And, you know, I told him that he hadn't heard this actually. And he takes Judaism very seriously. And then he, he, he told me that, um, he said, you know, I got a call the other day uh, from Japan. They wanted to order 200 uh, T-shirts from my shop. And, I, and then he said, and around the world, I started getting orders for T-shirts from my shop. And I thought to myself, who wore my T-shirt? And then he points to a frame picture of Johnny Depp wearing the T-shirt for his store, which, by the way, is called Mystery Peer Books, if you want to check it out. And, um, and so, because Johnny Depp wore his shirt in concert, like, people all over the world are ordering, like, this T-shirt. Like, they want this T-shirt, right? So, anyway, we got along, and, and then he said to me, uh, you know, he said, well, he says, I'll give you a discount and everything like that. And, you know, we were just starting to get into a little bit more Torah. And then all of a sudden, I remembered my car. I'm going to get a ticket. So, I just, out of nowhere, I said, I got to go. <laughs> and then I ran up, and I, I saw my car didn't have a ticket, and I drove away. And there it was. That's, that's the end of the story. <laughs> so... <laughs> So, you know, you're on sunset one moment, and the next moment you're in like an English cottage, underground, <laughs> surrounded by rare first editions. And that's no less life than went to the office, clocked in, clocked out, came home, had the same dinner that I always have on Wednesdays. No, both are life. Both are life. Life is, God doesn't run the world in a one plus one equals two way. It just, it just doesn't happen like that. And, and, and what happens is, is that we take all of these experiences and we all have different variations of these types of experiences. And, and somehow we don't, we say, this is the exception and this is the exception and this is the exception. And, and then it's sort of like, can you imagine like, you know, like you order some, I don't know, you order some roast chicken and it comes with a side of peas, right? And then imagine they keep on putting peas on your plate. <laughs> and then it's mostly peas with a little side order of chicken, you know? And at a certain point, you have to ask yourself, what's the entree? You know, is it rationality or is it beyond the rational? What is the real fabric of existence? What is it? You know? And, and the Ramban says, the Ramban says that someone who doesn't understand that every single moment is a miracle, you ready for this statement? It's very powerful what's coming. Someone who doesn't understand that every single moment is a miracle has no share in the Torah of Moses. That means you might have a Jewish soul. Your mom might be Jewish, which makes you Jewish. You might be 100% Jewish, as Jewish as Abraham or Moses, but your thought system is 100% not Jewish. So, so this, is, this is reality, right? Reality is, it's, 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 it's beyond. It's beyond. And it doesn't make sense doesn't it make sense that it's beyond? If we dwell within God, and God is infinite, and we're finite, because we're a creation of God, even though he puts an aspect of, in, 
of himself in us, which is our soul, which is an aspect of infinity, right? Nonetheless, we're finite dwelling amongst the infinite, which means reality has to be super rational. In other words, there has to be limits to the extent to which we can understand the world if our minds are ultimately rational or finite compared to God. Let me say that one more time. We're finite creatures. God is infinite. There's only a certain extent to which we can grasp his infinity. Because he made our minds. So if he made our minds, how can we be smarter than him? He's smarter than us. For sure. And if we can't grasp the totality, that means at a certain point, our rational understanding of things runs into a wall at a certain point. So, I want to transition into more specifics. When I talked about the limits of universality, I want to get a little more focused on Korach and, and discuss it in that context. Korach was a very great and amazing figure in the Torah. And he's probably the most modern figure in the Torah, in a way. Moses is eternal. Moses is absolutely forever and relevant in every age. Some people make, a lot of people make, a very big mistake. And it's, 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 they, they look at the Torah, the five books, and they say, where does it say Steve Jobs? Where does it say iPad? Where does it say airplane? Where does it say DNA? And therefore, since it says none of those things, this book is archaic and doesn't apply to present times. This is a very fundamental mistake. The Torah is written in the language of the day. But what's contained in the Torah is infinite and is for all times. So that's a very superficial understanding of what the Torah is all about. To understand it as some kind of dated or outmoded thing. That's, that's, that shows a fundamental disconnect with what the Torah is. The Torah is forever. So Moshe is forever. The Torah is forever. However, in terms of a modern personality... There is no more modern personality than Korach. Because Korach says the following thing. Just a little biographical information. Korach was a cousin of Moses's. He was a great and wise man. He was a big leader. And he was crazy rich. Crazy rich. He was like the richest Jew in Israel. Okay? Now... He, they say they have different accounts for how did he become so rich. One of the explanations is that he actually got the treasure of Joseph. Joseph's treasure, like, I guess, Joseph built up quite a fortune, and he got it somehow. And they talk about how he had, like, I don't even know what the number is, something like 90 donkeys that were just filled, pack donkeys, with the keys to his treasures. <laughs> So this is just try to, trying to open up our mind to the extent of his wealth. Okay? Now, Korach had some personality issues. Because he felt, since he's so smart, which he was, 
and he's so rich, which he was, why isn't he running the show? <laughs> there's like, sort of like, you know, like, there's, there, there seemed to be a big disconnect in his mind there, right? And so he leads a rebellion against Moses. All right? And if you think about it, for me, and I'm just speaking personally, this is one of the proofs of the authenticity of the Torah, in my opinion. And I'll tell you why. Because if you've got millions of people leaving Egypt, especially if they're Jews who are known for having strong opinions, right? You've got millions of people with strong opinions. You lead them out in the middle of nowhere. You keep them there for a while. Someone's going to say, hey, you know what? Enough of this guy. I'm the guy right now. In other words, you have to, there has to have been a rebellion. There has to have been a rebellion. And there, by the way, there was more than one rebellion. If you actually kind of look, there was even a bit of a civil war, which never gets talked about. It's buried in Arashi. But anyway, that aside, um, <clears throat> facts like that make me believe in the authenticity of the account of the Torah. Because that, that's normal for, that, for human beings in that situation to act in that way. And in fact, here's an account of them acting in that way. So, so anyway, so what does Korach say? And this is what makes him so modern, in, in, in my opinion. Um, Korach says, we're all holy. We're all holy. Like, why should there be a leader? Like, everyone should be the leader. We all have the truth. We all, we all stood at Mount Sinai. We all have the truth. Now, the hidden agenda was, we all have the truth, and here's the part he didn't say, therefore, I'm in charge. <laughs> but that's what individuals say also. That's what individuals say today also. When they say, we're all holy, which means what? I get to decide what's right and what's wrong and what I get to do and what I don't get to do. We're all like mini Koroks today. It, it's, it's, it's fascinating. Korach is a fascinating, fascinating figure. And um, Korach meets a terrible end. But, but then according to the Ari, he kind of like, because there, there was a sincere aspect to him. See, that's another part of the complicatedness of this, is because Korach did have a sincerity to him as well. You see, people are mixed bags of things. It's, it's rare to find someone who's just like a pure sociopath, you know, who's just like bent on their own private agenda and, you know, is willing to walk on the backs of millions in order to get that, you know. They exist. They've existed throughout history. Um, you know, I was thinking of Stalin this week, and it's sort of like just like who he was and what he did. This guy murdered more people than Hitler. Stalin, you know, people don't really... <laughs> Stalin was nuts. He was nuts. And he terrified. Well, there are people who would take issue with that description, that he wasn't nuts. That that's actually the problem, was that he wasn't nuts. That's actually way scarier than saying that he's nuts. You know, so let's just say he wasn't nuts. But just in order to kind of like, to divine a, a pattern that's happened throughout history, in certain countries, at certain periods of history, there arises a figure who so terrifies his compatriots 
that they're willing to listen to him. And this person has no sense of right and wrong. This person just wants what he wants and is willing to kill oftentimes millions of people to achieve his goal. And the people who surround him are so terrified that they're going to kill him next, that they're the next ones in line to be killed, that they follow along. And so what you have is somehow, just through force of personality, cult of personality, you get a leader who arises who just terrifies everyone in sight. And he's able to build an organization that then proceeds to murder millions of people. And this has happened throughout history, where these guys just arise and through pure force of terror, just intimidate everyone around them, and people are afraid, this guy's going to kill me. He's going to kill, he has no compunction about killing me. And you know what? He has no compunction about killing those people. Those people who are surrounded and who do his bidding, now some of them are also corrupt. Some of them think, okay, this guy's my ticket to power, and I'm going to benefit by being associated with him. I'm going to get a very high role. So the people, his cronies, aren't just victims also. A lot of those people are also bent and corrupt. But one of their motivating sort of like concerns is, he will kill me next unless I listen to him and do his will. And so a whole organization gets built up. So Stalin was one of these people, you know. It's really, it's really, well, what, what's, what I'm trying to say is, I mean, you can, you can have a lot of thoughts off of that, but what I'm trying to say is, there are individuals, individuals transform the world, for good and for bad. And if you think of this, this what, what, the, what the Soviet Union was for decades, it was largely built, that culture, by Stalin. Largely. You know, obviously, Lenin, Marx, all the rest, there's a whole history leading up to Stalin. But this, this prison chamber that a large part of the world got turned into was really like, Largely the product of Stalin. And so, so if you look at the Torah, one of the... See, another misunderstanding, and again, fundamental misunderstanding of the Torah is, the Torah is so small. If you look at the five books, even if you look at all, you know, the whole Tanakh, you know, Torah and Suving, the writings and, 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 and the Nevi'im, the prophets, it's really small. So people want to know, well, why isn't this in the Torah if the Torah is real? And why isn't that in the Torah if the Torah is real, right? Because the Torah can't be the entire unabridged history of everything. On some level it is. If you know all the different ways of interpreting the Torah, we've talked about Atbash and all the different amazing systems of, 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 of going very deeply into the Torah, Gamatria, all sorts of things. Everything is in the Torah. But on a revealed level, there's only so much that you can put in. I mean, otherwise, it's going to be a book the size of the world itself. So that doesn't make sense. So in other words, what the Torah chooses to include is very, very significant. And what the Torah consistently includes, and I really heard this point made by Rabbi Beryl Wine, is stories about individuals and families and the interrelationship between those two. Because if you look at the history of the world, it really is made by individuals and associations, and choices. 
seemingly sometimes small choices, which is not clear to us how big the consequence of those choices are. You know, I heard Reb Shlomo say in the name, in the name of Rebbe Nachman, if Adam, of, if Adam HaRishon, right, if Adam knew what would come from eating from the tree of knowledge, like all the destruction, all the exile that, that came from sort of our, our exile from Eden, in a million years he wouldn't have eaten from that. In a million years he wouldn't have eaten from it. So what was the problem? He didn't take himself seriously enough. You see, these seemingly small choices, like you could say to yourself, like, what's the big deal? I, I, I ate a, <laughs> I took a bite of a grape, for goodness sakes. But, yeah, it, it is a big deal. It is a big deal. And so, if you look at the world, and we've talked about this many times, and you see how much order there is in the cosmos, in DNA, in the, in, in the percentage of what we breathe, the particles, the formula of nitrogen and oxygen in what we breathe, in terms of atoms and subatomic, subatomic particles, you see such precision in the world. It's very clear that God has very precise opinions about everything. Right? He doesn't say, well, it's a chromosome, so let's throw in a few extra Y chromosomes. You'd be walking around with like nine eyes and five heads. Right? So, so God has a very precise opinion about everything. So again, another modern, another modern thought. And I shared this with you, I think, but, but one more time. I have a friend who, you know, he went to Israel, he was studying a little bit, and he was just in the beginning of his journey, you know, in terms of observance and Torah and trying to understand it. And he said, you know, he was on a date with a girl, he told me, and uh, he himself wasn't keeping kosher, but, you know, he was thinking about it. And so he sits down with her and she orders shrimp. And he's, you know, he's trying to invite her into his thought process. And he says to her, you know, do you ever think that maybe that's wrong? Wrong thing to do. And she says, God is too busy to care about whether I eat shrimp or not. Right? And I said to him, you should have said to her, is God too busy to send blood to your brain? Right? Because God... An aspect of God's infinity is that everything matters. That's, that's a product of his infinity. That he's everywhere and he's at all times and that he's in everything. And that every choice that we make has significance. And it has to, if you think about it logically. If we live amidst God, if we're interacting and we're constantly, you know, going through the, the oneness and the infinity of God... If the, if, the, if the currency we're dealing with at all times is God's own infinity, then how can there be a shortage of meaning? meaning? How could there be a shortage of meaning or significance if, if, if the coin of the realm is godliness and God's own infinity? And we look around and we see that God has an opinion about everything, that everything is precise. So how could it be that our own lives don't also demand a level of precision? How could that be? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. So people like, they, 
they, they turn it upside down because they don't understand. So they say, the rabbis are control freaks. That's, that's the ultimate thing. They want to take my beautiful spirit and weigh me down. They want to tie me up in chains. But is, is, is that it? Is that it? You, you're telling me I have to make a blessing after I go to the bathroom? You're telling me really there's a Torah way to put on my socks and shoes? And there is, by the way. You put on your right sock and then your left sock, your right shoe and then your left shoe. Then you tie your left shoe. It gets reversed on the tie. Then you tie your right shoe. Okay? Right sock, left sock, right shoe, left shoe. Tie your left shoe, then tie your right shoe. But if you ask me, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. That's the essence of beauty. You mean I can do... You mean... You mean that when I'm putting on my socks and shoes, at that moment I'm standing before God? Or I'm sitting before God? And that, and that there's a way to elevate that moment? There's a way to elevate that moment? The most mundane thing in the entire world, putting on my socks and shoes? There's a way to sanctify it and make it beautiful before God? Who's right there at that moment? To me, that's the most beautiful thing in the world. You see... If there wasn't a way to do absolutely everything, then I would question the truth of this entire system. In other words, every single aspect has to have a way to access the holiness of the moment. That's why there's so much Jewish law. But someone who comes in from the outside says, there's so much Jewish law, get me out of here. <laughs> what are you talking about? i got to make a living and... Pick my nose any time. <laughs> well, there's, there's time. There's time. All we got is time. <laughs> you know, so, so, so there has to be an appreciation. And again, we go back to the, to the central question that I started with. And maybe we'll wrap it up with that. Which is, God gives wisdom to the wise. And again, there's a problem with that passage. God gives wisdom to the wise. Well, if you're already wise, why do you need wisdom? And if you're not wise, how do you get wisdom? So, it's a very complicated verse. And now, we answer it with another verse, which is, Reshis Hachma Yeras Hashem. The beginning of wisdom is the awareness of godliness. So once someone has Yira, and Yira has the letters of the word to see, that you actually see that God is around you. In other words, it's not an abstract thing. This is not an intellectual exercise. I'm not positing X and deriving Y, right? It's real. You know, like I'm, I'm really engulfed by godliness. It's, it's all around me. It saturates all of existence. If that's, if that's my frame of mind, if I have Yira, then, then the person can progress. The person has awareness. That's the beginning of wisdom. And now they're in the wise club. And now God gives wisdom to the wise. That's how you get into the wise club, right? By having this level of awareness. And now you can begin to grow. And remember, this is the headline. This is the headline, right? Because, because you don't want to bury the lead. You don't want to have to say, oh, well, let's debate 
whether or not women should have aliyahs on Shabbos. That's a worthy debate. But that's not the lead. The lead is, all there is in the world is God. <laughs> now let's start talking. You know, so, anyway, that's all. Have a good week. <laughs> <laughs>